Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. If you're listening to this, you're probably a professional, a quote unquote white collar professional used to working at a desk with a computer. If you're somebody like that and you're considering buying a business that is blue collar, that is going to be a big shift for you. So my guest today, search investor Shannon Jones, and I discuss the realities of acquiring a blue-collar business. Shannon expresses these realities beautifully and with lots of interesting stories along the way. This is one of my favorite interviews so far, really an important and delicate topic with a guy who I think you'll agree has thought deeply about it and seen it. Shannon shares some of his own scars from his experiences. Enjoy my conversation with Shannon Jones. Shannon Jones, thank you for joining me today on Acquiring Minds. I am psyched to be here. I've been serial uh, binging your show for the last month <laughs> and uh, much smarter for having done so. So I'm excited to be on and, and really honored to be on. I appreciate that. Well, you are the founder of Hallstatt Legacy Partners, which is which invests in acquisition entrepreneurs who are seeking to buy a business. Mm-hmm. And you founded Hallstatt Legacy Partners six years ago in partnership with the Hallstatt family office. Hallstatt is a big name in Southwestern Florida based out of Naples. I'm going to ask you to give a proper introduction of yourself here in a minute. But just to set the stage for our conversation, because I've been really eager um, to have this conversation, we're going to talk about the um, sort of disconnection between the fact that many acquisition entrepreneurs, searchers, uh, are, for lack of a better phrase, white collar. They're professional types. They People listening to this podcast, I include myself in that, have probably never broken a sweat or a nail in their professional lives. And many of the, the businesses that uh, are talked about as acquisition targets in this world are blue collar businesses. Um, the, a plumbing business, a fencing business, a, a landscaping company. And so the people that work in those businesses, not only not only the, the employees of those businesses, but many times the founders themselves are also are just are blue collar and they have a different, frankly, a different um, perspective, a different day to day than you, the acquisition entrepreneur. And so there's a lot of miscommunication that can happen in that in that cultural difference. And um, this is something that people recognize, but I don't feel like is talked about directly a lot. It, it interests me personally a lot. So, so as I said, I've been eager to talk to you about this. You have direct experience with it. Uh, you've invested. You have indirect experience with it. You've observed it many times. So, you're a great guy to talk about it. Um, and I've already heard you in other presentations talk about it. So, that's what we're here to talk about. Before right. I start peppering you with my questions, please give me a minute or two on on yourself. Sure, happy to do it. Um, so, uh, as you mentioned, I founded Halstead Legacy Partners in partnership with uh, the Halstead family office six years ago. Uh, it was really a marriage of two, two distinct interests. Um, Halstead, or, or the family behind Halstead's interest in investing in the acquisition of businesses in the what I would describe as the lower markets, and my interest as, uh, I guess, by some definitions, an entrepreneur and now an investor in helping entrepreneurs achieve what is a really kind of important and existential and kind of really hard goal in their lives. And so uh, over the course of the last six years, we've conducted seven searches, we've acquired five businesses, we have one partner currently searching, 
And uh, in the next, call it, well, by the end of the year, I'm hoping to invest in three or four self-funded searches, uh, some of which um, would be you know, <laughs> relevant to this conversation. But among the five companies we've acquired, one is a concrete and asphalt paving business based in Durham, North Carolina. One is an acoustic ceilings and acoustic systems sound abatement uh, installation based, uh, business based in Tampa. And one is a, what's called a resurfacing business or a make-ready business which is basically a painting uh, and, and contracting um, a company that specializes in serving the multi-unit, basically rental apartments industry. Okay. okay. So three kind of classically blue-collar businesses. Uh, and you know, two more seconds on on me. Yep. Uh, you know, I have a family history of entrepreneurship, which is how I eventually came back to being an entrepreneur after starting out a career in finance and realizing that wasn't the right space for me. My my mother owned a marketing agency, and my father owned a manufacturing business that did heating and cooling systems for injection molders, largely in the uh, auto supply chain. And so I spent my summers learning how to weld, uh, not very well. This <laughs> is maybe why I followed followed ultimately a more bougie path. Uh, and, and, you know, sweeping up the shop and doing stuff like that. So yeah, I'll stop there. Okay. Well, that was, that was a great intro, Shannon. Well, I found you, uh, actually I, I referred earlier to a presentation, um, that I'd, I've seen you talk on this topic. And so I found you, uh, at a presentation on search funder, um, where the title was poets versus quants. Mm-hmm. Um, so how to, how to approach acquiring a business as a poet versus as a quant. So uh, I think a lot of that, th- th- that presentation will uh, be relevant to my questions. So I want to ask you to give us a, a very abbreviated kind of four or five minute uh, recap of that presentation and what it means to uh, uh, treat acquisition entrepreneurship as a poet rather than as a quant. Mm-hmm. Well, in a nutshell, uh, it, uh, my hope was to draw a distinction between the way some people see this exercise of entrepreneurship. Uh, which is to say they, they, they think about it in terms of uh, investments and IRR and return of invested or multiples of invested capital and multiples. And, you know, is it a three times or is it a five times? And it's not that that, that is irrelevant, um, but from the seller's perspective, <laughs> it's not as relevant as some of the more squishy and personal aspects of who you are as a potential buyer and how mm-hmm. they're thinking about who they should choose to sell their baby to, in a manner of speaking, and so the po- the, po- the point I was hoping to to make, or to sort of you know uh, poke people was about about was um, how best to uh, or the best ways to foster connection, to build relationships, and to achieve a degree of of trust and understanding with a seller uh, are through these squishier subjects. And I think about those in terms of really four key concepts. The first being self reflection. Um, and it is not unusual for me to interact with an aspiring searcher of all different forms um, who can't really tell me why they're doing what they're doing other than that they really want to own a business, mm-hmm. which leads me to wonder. So one, there's about what they're doing. Um, and really, at the end of the day, uh, if you can be uh, sort of brutally um, uh, self-reflective, defining your why. Why are you doing this? Not just like I want to own a business, but why for you and your family and the people in your lives will this is this important? And why would you forsake other career opportunities to do this? You know, what are your values? What are your objectives? What are you afraid of? What are you not good at? What are you really good at? 
all those things can be um, uh, woven into a story mm-hmm. that helps people understand who you are and helps them kind of latch on to the components of that story that they find interesting, they might identify with, and fosters eventual connection. And it's really, at the end of the day, the point of all of this is connection between you and the seller is what's going to be the difference between you getting a deal done and you not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The second point is vulnerability, right? So I think a lot of us are habituated to talking about ourselves in terms of like LinkedIn profiles. You know, these are my professional achievements. These are all the metrics that in a conventional you know, realm should suggest to you that I am smart, accomplished, you know, capable, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But really more important in building a connection with someone is you being vulnerable and taking the risk of, of, of revealing who you really are through telling that story. And it's taking that vulnerability that will, one, allow somebody else to understand you and two, elicit a form of reciprocity coming back they'll start to reveal things about themselves to you. Uh, And again, that kind of give and take of information that I would argue you should take the risk to start is what will continue fostering this relationship and connection between you and the seller. The third thing is curiosity, right? Uh, I'm a huge fan of a a fairly recent Malcolm Gladwell book, um, Talking to Strangers. And Mm -hmm. the overarching takeaway for me from that book is, look, we're all much dumber (laughs) about other people than we think we are. And I think this is particularly true for smart, educated people. We have a, have a sense that like, hey, I'm intellectually capable and I, I know what's going on in your head. And the reality is you really don't. And the only way to know is to ask good questions and be humble and listen, right? But the second, the real value behind being curious, uh, the real value behind curiosity is, uh, and this I, I, is a concept I've stolen from Jim Sharp. And if you're not you know, reading Jim Sharp's blog religiously, you should, Jim Stein Sharp. <laughs> Okay. Uh, I'll link to it in the notes. Yeah. Um, it's understanding the seller's why is essential because that's what will handicap for you whether or not you have any chance of doing this deal mm-hmm. that you're talking about. Understanding their motivations, their fears, their objectives, and determining whether or not you are in a u- unique position to give those to them mm-hmm. uh, or to help them avoid the fear uh, will determine whether or not you know uh, a deal is likely to be yours to have. And the last one is empathy, right? Do you have the ability to recognize and understand the feelings of someone else? If you've gone through the first three, you've created connections and you've been asking good questions, you can use your understanding of that other party uh, in order to, uh, and use the, the empathy related there too, to work through the inevitable difficulties in the deal process. I've never heard of a deal that didn't die a couple of times <laughs> before mm-hmm. it ended up happening. And it's having empathy and, and, and an understanding of the person across the table, and thus a way to sort of reinterpret some of the things that we might, in a very visceral and immediate sense, have a negative reaction to, but at least having an appreciation for where those might come from, why the seller is afraid that you're going to screw up their business, or you don't really have the money to get the deal done, or that the employees aren't going to like you, or I'm giving you this big note, but I don't know if the customer is going to like you, and what happens if you, you know, all these things if you have empathy for the other party, when the inevitable hiccups come up, you can get through them. So that's 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 in a nutshell what I what I talk about or what I talked about in that presentation, and it's what I try to remind our partners of when they're interacting with really anybody, but in particular in this kind of buyer seller relationship, because it helps them refocus on the relationship aspects uh, of deal making, which I think determine whether or not a deal gets done, and focus less on the 
you know, the DCF, the LBO, yeah. uh, and, and the multiples, which, you know, everybody likes to talk about because they're easy, Yeah, but that's not why the deal gets done. Yeah. And Shannon, in your in, in working with searchers, do you find that of those four things that one is particularly difficult for your average searcher to um, to perform? Well, I think the self reflection um, is. Uh, I'll answer that two ways. One is more difficult, and one is like least done. Yeah, <laughs> self reflection is least done, uh, and I think that's for a couple of reasons. And I, and I at various points in my career, I'm an example of this. I considered doing a search back in 2009, 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was so shocked, like many people, when they first become acquainted with the concept of search entrepreneurship, that there was such a thing. Yeah. yeah. That I stopped looking. I had a meeting with Coley, uh, Coley Andrew from Pacific Lake. Uh, and it's like, oh my God, I could raise money. They will pay me to do this. I go find the deal. They give me the money to buy the deal. I own a lot of the deal. This is like the greatest thing I've ever And then heard I become of. CEO. And I'm CEO, which everybody knows I should be. <laughs> uh, so this is the most amazing thing ever. Yeah. Um, now, I ultimately elected not to do a search. I met my wife at Kellogg. She is by far the better half in our partnership. She was kicking butt in her career, and I couldn't commit to, and, and we wouldn't commit to going just anywhere. Her career was happening in San Francisco, and not, we weren't leaving San Francisco. Yep. I did not you know, if I had really been thoughtful about what I was trying to do, um, I probably, I might have ended up doing a search, but I was so focused on the one aspect of it that I found interesting. I failed to really evaluate more broadly, like, why is this interesting to me? And what are we really trying to do as a family and a partnership and a couple and all this stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I punted and went in a different direction. Ultimately, I'm happy with <laughs> where I ended up, but I didn't really spend the time after, you know, after being exposed to the initial shock that there was such a thing as search entrepreneurship to really be thoughtful about what I was trying to do. The other thing that I think is hardest is vulnerability. And I just think that, you know, it's really hard to admit you don't know. It's really hard to admit you've made mistakes. It's really hard to admit that you're afraid, you know, like nobody likes doing that. Yeah. But the reality is, and, and, and I think we may end up, you know, getting into this a little bit more later, but the reality is, I think it's better for you to just address those things up front because the seller is thinking them about you anyway. The seller's thinking, gosh, this person is really young or gosh, I don't know if this person has the money or gosh, this person has never, you know, broken a fingernail or, you know, had a callus or, you know, in their life. Yeah. Um, so you may as well acknowledge their concerns and maybe to some extent that you actually share them because that's a way of fostering connection. What I find a lot of entrepreneurs do is they try to do these data dumps, you know, immediately upon me, you know, let me convince you that I'm really smart and I know a lot about your industry. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that's ultimately kind of self-defeating because the person that you're speaking to, in the case of a couple of the companies we've acquired with our partners, they've been in the industry longer than the person who's now the CEO has been alive. <laughs> you cannot convince them that you know their industry and that you're really smart about it. You're just by definition not. You might be a smart person, but you're ignorant about the industry. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think there are natural reasons why people are very hesitant to be vulnerable, but we've seen time and again the benefits. Well, I also I, I suspect. What do you think of this? That that not to belittle the these companies or their industries, but I, I what a lot of people say is that these are simple businesses, fundamentally pretty simple businesses, um, and, and and maybe the, therefore the industries too are pretty simple. So. 
where the challenge is, is not in noodling out all of the industry dynamics. The challenge is in the managing of the people uh, and, and in doing the work. And so if you come in, swagger into the, the interview with the seller, showing how book smart you are in their industry, not only um, are you looking like uh, foolish because they have 30 years experience and you have you know two weeks of reading about it, but you're also just kind of optimizing for the wrong thing. They don't. They don't really care as much about your your book learning on their industry as they do. They're looking at probably as you are you a capable leader? Are you somebody that my my team is going to feel comfortable working under? Will the team feel comfortable, and will my customers feel comfortable? And customers, of course. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Great. Well, let's get into these questions, Shannon. So thank thank you for that rundown. That was great. And I and I will link to the the original presentation in the show notes. And I encourage everybody to go watch it. Uh, it's on YouTube via search funder. So the first question is simply, um, it, it, taught, it goes to this, this quant versus poet thing. People, are, I think, are attracted to blue-collar businesses uh, because they see these low multiples. It's very kind of a, a um, quantified analysis. It's like, oh, I can buy a company that's generating half a million dollars, a million dollars uh, in earnings for a low, mul- a low mul- multiple. Uh, but the actual day-to-day of running a plumbing company is is a different beast than sitting, you know, sitting behind Excel. How can I answer the question of if if the if, if this is something I really want to do? Putting aside, you know, how how good it looks on paper. Yeah, it's a great question. I think the the most underrated, you know, I actually heard Steve Ressler say something about this. So I think on his recent visit to your show, but you know. I think the best way to do it, if you have not been in the context, is to put yourself in the context. And the best way that I can think of is to try to shadow somebody who's in that context. Um, so if you're considering buying a plumbing business, like I don't think you should employ people to do work that you either haven't done or you're not willing to do yourself. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I, it's sort of the same. I mean, this is sort of like the universal solution, I think, to things you don't know about. You know, searchers who say they're aspiring to search. I ask them, have you put yourself in the position to understand what it feels like to search? Yeah. You know, or have you worked in a small business? You know, if you want to buy a plumbing company, I would argue, figure out a way to shadow a plumber. Yeah. Figure out, you know, is this, you know, is this a context in which you want to be spending the vast majority of your waking life? You know, are these conversations that you want to be having or constantly thinking about as an entrepreneur? Because you are constantly thinking about <laughs> your company and the people in it, you know. And the best way that I can think of is to take it from a hypothetical into an actual experience. And the best way to do that is to be doing it or with somebody who's doing it and experiencing that. The second thing I would say is ask yourself, you know, related to that concept of like, I don't think you should employ people to do things you wouldn't or haven't done, is ask yourself, like, what are you really willing to do? So, you know, anecdotally, uh, I, I, I'm partnered with a person who I don't think anybody on his team knows this about him. But he has a Harvard MBA and he runs a concrete and asphalt paving business. Mm-hmm. And he knows how to operate a milling machine mm-hmm. because his milling machine operator had a heart attack. They had only one milling machine operator. And he realized pretty damn quick, oh, I need to get, <laughs> I need people skilled in this. And you know what? If we're going to have people learning, I may as well do it too. Mm-hmm. So a milling machine is this massive thing that chews up parking lots and roads. And, you know, it's this humongous thing. And, you know, my partner, John, the Harvard MBA can stand on top of one of those things and chew up a parking lot if he needs to. Or, you know, my partner in the resurfacing business of his own accord 
shortly after buying the business, went out and got trained on how to be a resurfacing technician mm-hmm. because he wanted to understand what his employees were experiencing and what was easy and hard and annoying about the job. And, you know, yeah, he could ask them and he does, but he also wanted to experience it for himself. So, you know, the question is, you know, like these are good jobs providing good lives for real people. Um, but I think the, you know, if you think of yourself as like, I'm the, I'm the president, I'm the white collar president of a blue collar business, you're going to have a problem. And if you don't find yourself enjoying or being intrigued by the context in which your, you know, soon to be team is existing on a day-to-day basis, I don't think you should buy the company. The, the old e-myth, uh, Frey, I think it comes from that book, working on the business rather than in the business. Sure. You know, I, I suspect a lot of people just see themselves. I mean, they they try. Any entrepreneur has has been told that again and again and again. And so, this is actually counter advice to that. You're not suggesting I realize that they should become the, one of the plumbers in the business, but do get in the business more than you might otherwise be inclined to do. Just um, at least at the outset to, to understand it and. Sure, you can have a vision to work on the business uh, a little bit longer term, but um, if you can't imagine working in the business, you should stay away. Is that a, is that a, a fair? Yeah, to me, and again, I mean, if we want to bring it back to uh, uh, this concept of curiosity, empathy, developing an understanding, uh, you know, I think this broader conversation is revolving around the idea that if you're someone who, you know, I'll generalize and I'll, you know, someone like me, right? Like my dad owned a business that was, you know, my dad grew up in Youngstown, Ohio. He did not have a lot of money, bootstrapped his way through school, bootstrapped his way into business ownership. He owned this business that did blue collar things, but like, you know, that's not me. I lived in a big house. You know, I, my, both my parents were educated. I never wanted for anything. I, you know, I appreciate blue collar, but I'm really not a blue collar guy, right? Like I, you know, um, and so what I'm trying to help under, uh, articulate here is that there can be these kind of cultural and experiential differences between a white collar acquirer and a blue collar workforce. And the reason I'm advocating in the business, not on the business from the outset is because with curiosity and empathy, if you do these experiential things, I think you can bridge that cultural and experiential gap. But if you don't, if you're not willing to try, then I don't think you should own the blue collar business. Yeah. Because what I've seen in my, in, in either, you know, in advising other entrepreneurs and in some cases in my own career, if you don't bridge that gap, it, it creates like massive cultural implications that you don't want and ultimately revenue implications. And it's just, it's not great. So that's why I'm advocating for the white collar buyer of a blue collar business that you maybe break these <laughs> on the business versus in the business rules because you yeah. have to understand your team. Yeah, that's great, Jenin. On communicating with a sell with it with a blue collar seller. So in many cases, the seller of the business, him or herself, is going to be somebody who you know, is also blue collar and maybe they started at the, at the very bottom and just grew a crew around them. And and 30 years later, they're sitting atop a business of 50 people or 10 people. So while they might be a little bit more senior than their crews, they are still fundamentally, uh, you know, close, more close, close culturally to the blue collar folks than, than, than to you. Yep. So, um, 
give us, you know, talk, talk through that a little bit and, and, and bring in your, your, your four points again. Sure. So I, I'm going to, uh, uh, talking a lot about paving today and, and John's yeah. going to me my partner in paving, but I think a lot of this is relevant because it's just like the contrasts are stark, right? Harvard MBA, concrete asphalt paving, John Strankowski and Fred Satterfield. So Fred Satterfield was the owner uh, and founder of, of Satterfield Paving. Fred, when we met him, uh, was 78 years old, Vietnam veteran. To my knowledge, he certainly didn't ever attend college. He might not have graduated from high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of the American dream. Came back from Vietnam, got onto a paving crew, realized that the guy in the truck was making more money than the guys with the shovels, saved his money till he could buy a truck, kept saving, kept buying. And years and years later, he had this business generating north of $10 million of revenue and you know millions of dollars in EBITDA and was employing close to 50 people and owned more money or owned own more land in North Carolina that he ever had dreamed of. And like the guy is just- Phenomenal. Phenomenal. It's like the American dream, really. Yeah. Um, awesome. and, and so, okay, the guy's 78. You know, I was 43 when we bought the company. I want to say John was 35. You know, I went to Northwestern for undergrad and have an MBA from there. John went to University of North Carolina for undergrad and as a Harvard MBA. Yeah. John had prior to searching, uh, done, you know, uh, kind of an accelerated rotations program in, in pharmaceutical sales and marketing for J and J and started a <laughs> biotech company for God's sakes. Yeah. You know, like nothing to do with paving. Yeah. Um, but here's what John did very well. John is humble. John is curious. Uh, and John takes great pains to understand what's going on around him. And so like, John never shied away from the fact that, I mean, I don't, he certainly never, I don't think he ever discussed with the Satterfields that he has an MBA from Harvard because it's really frankly not relevant and probably would have, you know, uh, been uh, unattractive to them. Yeah. But what he never shied away from is, look, his story is I'm a guy from North Carolina. I've been all over the place. I've done some interesting things, but I realized at the end of the day, I want to live here Mm -hmm. and I want to do real work with real people. And I don't know everything there is to know about paving. In fact, by most measures, I don't know anything, but I'm a good person. I'm humble. I'm smart. I work hard. I ask a lot of questions. You know, I treat people well. uh, And, you know, if you would do me the honor of selling me your business, I think I could continue the legacy mm-hmm. really well. Mm-hmm. That's it. So mm-hmm. he never, like he basically addressed any concern that the Satterfields would have about him upfront. These are the things you're probably worried about me. Some of them, I'm kind of worried about them too, <laughs> but let's talk about them because I'm not going to pretend they don't exist. The second thing is John, uh, he sounds more like a local North Carolina guy than he sounds like a Harvard MBA. Um, And that's not an act. That's just who John is. Mm -hmm. He can, uh, you know, if he talks to the Hallstatt board, for instance, um, you know, he can sound like a Harvard MBA, but in his heart of hearts, John is a normal guy who happens to be very smart and happens to have a great degree. Um, But he enjoys working with 
interacting with, being teammates with, selling to, and providing value to good old fashioned on normal people. Yeah. He doesn't speak in terms of EBITDA and IRR. And, you know, like we talk about gross margin, but I'm pretty sure he doesn't talk about that with his customers. You know, he is out kind of having these salt of the earth conversations that I would imagine a lot of his cohort from HBS would not recognize. Yeah. Um, and that's how he spoke to the Satterfields. Um, and, and a funny example of, of, of the dichotomy here um, between John and me is I actually almost cratered that deal unintentionally. Um, because at a certain point, the South Crate, cratered, cratered, yeah. destroyed, yeah. screwed up, <laughs> okay. irrevocably damaged <laughs> the deal. Uh, and, and it happened because um, the Satterfields wanted to meet me uh-huh. because one of their concerns was, do you have the money to do this deal? Uh-huh. It's not insignificant. Right. And um, and so I flew up there to meet with them and uh, we had lunch. And over the course of an hour lunch, they decided that I was a Yankee carpetbagger and not to be trusted. Um, wow. Uh, because at a Lone Star Steakhouse, and I'm an idiot, I ordered a filet mignon uh, and um, steamed broccoli because I'm kind of, you know, finicky about what I eat. And they all ordered like cheesy steak sandwiches and tater tots. Okay. Um, and and because I, you know, spoke in a way that they weren't comfortable with and I just, like, I, they just did not, I did not resonate with them. This positively. is like a scene from a movie, Shannon. I mean, I, I swear you were the that. suit. <laughs> I totally was the suit. Yeah. Even, I mean, and every, even though, even though you, they recognized, I mean, you, you were positioned to be the money guy. They're not necessarily expecting a, a guy in a plaid shirt and, and work boots to roll in. You're the money guy, but it still was off-putting to them. It's an example of, you know, they, well, it's an example of two things, right? So I was off-putting to them and John recovered. I never spoke to them again. <laughs> but John, John was able to recover because of the strength of his relationship and because they're of their kind of shared understanding of what they were trying to do together. And I think they probably regarded me and by extension Hallstatt as sort of the necessary evil because this was not an insignificant deal and, and it would require a lot of money and he needed yeah. to get it somewhere. But, yeah. um, but my point is, uh, you know, I'm aware of these things, right? Like it didn't just occur to me that you should be focused on these things. I was aware of them then. And I still screwed it up. And you still, yeah. And part of the reason I screwed it up is exactly what I'm talking about, right? Like I'm, I am aware that I am not John and, you know, so I wouldn't advocate that you go and try to put on some charade and, you know, but I was trying and I screwed it up. Yeah. Um, That's where my mind is going though, Shannon. It's like you, you could, you could see somebody taking your advice too far overcompensating and coming off as, as a, um, a, 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 as false, you know, they're, they're trying to project that they are like, they're like the seller and, and overdoing it and seeming phony. So there's the, well, you got to find the sweet spot. The good news for the buyer who tries to do that is first of all, most of us are not that good at improv anyway. So not likely to uh, be there very convincing. And then yep. they're going to ding you. Yeah. So you can't end up buying the bad company anyway. Yeah. Because <laughs> you wouldn't get the shot. But yeah, I'm not, I'm absolutely not advocating that. I'm advocating you be true to who you know, and through self-reflection, be true to yourself and be, you know, be candid with yourself about what are the contexts in which you're likely to be happy and successful. Uh and, and so, you know, you shouldn't have to act. When you're talking about uh what your partner John 
you know, what his why was in, in the search and bringing that back to that being the self-reflection being like the number one thing that you advise when people are thinking about being more po- poetic and less, uh, less quant quanti. Mm-hmm. Are, have, have there been, what are the wrong reasons for somebody to do a search? Like when you hear people's why? Well, it's interesting. Um, I, I, I will answer that, but I want to be careful because I guess what, what I'll say is these are the wrong reasons for me. Um, and, and the reason, and the reason they're wrong for me or for us, uh, and why that there might be a distinction in some respects is because like, there are a number of different flavors of search. And the sets of objectives associated with those different flavors are different. So I tend to focus on the day-to-day leadership realities an entrepreneur who becomes the CEO will face. Mm -hmm. And I tend, because we have a much longer perspective on our acquisitions, Mm -hmm. I also tend to be very focused on um, not just this deal-specific objectives, and we can certainly have a different conversation in a different episode about like what, how smart it is to be focused this way. Um, but, uh, you know, we are also focused on the broader context of the, you know, like, I don't want to be, I'm not interested in screwing up someone's life. I don't want to screw up their family. I don't want to screw up their marriage. I don't like, I, I want, I want balance and harmony and things to work right. Right. Yeah. So uh, look, th- my partners and the people that we invest with on self-funded, look, everyone has a profit motive here. Yep. But I would argue more broadly in search, if your reason for doing this is because it means you can be CEO fast or you can make a lot of money fast, that's not, you know, like that's not a compelling enough reason uh, such that when the times get tough and even in a growthy thing that's working really well, it's tough that you're going to like gut it out. <laughs> and worst case, when things don't go well, it's not enough of a reason for you to get it out. It's probably a reason that you won't get it out. Um, so the things that I think are more powerful are there is this broader and well-defined objective that is shared not only, you know, it's not only yours, but it is shared by the stakeholders in your life who will be influenced by it. And, 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 thereby those stakeholders have agreed to and taken steps to organize their life to support this shared objective. So like my partner, Michael Dames, just bought a business three and a half weeks ago. Mike's a uh, West Point grad, several tours of duty in Afghanistan, um, Booth MBA. You know, his why has to do with, he has two sons and a wife and uh, they, his wife, prior to their sons being born, endured this fairly typical um, spouse of a veteran experience whereby they moved all over the place, sometimes to places that were not terribly desirable. Um, and Mike was serving a, a bigger cause, but it was a bigger cause that was actually requiring a ton of sacrifice from his family mm-hmm. and that he felt like was giving him emotional and kind of. Um, uh, it was giving him meaning, but it was ha- coming with more of a cost to his family than not. Yeah. Yeah. And his why had to do with a couple of things on a very personal level. It's that he learned some really, really compelling and valuable leadership lessons in the military mm-hmm. that he was not getting to use as a middle manager in a large corporate, you know, Borg. Mm-hmm. He just wasn't getting to use those things. He was used to making decisions 
and impacting people's lives and you couldn't do it. And the second thing was he wanted viscerally to be able to acquire something in a place that he and his family could know would be their home and would allow them to build a, a position in the community and contribute to the community in a way that his boys as they grew up could be proud of and could sort of identify with. Mm -hmm. And so when he would go out to talk to people, like he was, that's his visceral why. You know, I have, I have, I have served my country. I have done these great things and had these great experiences. And I want to put those skills to use in a way that helps my family achieve this degree of kind of community stability, you know, et cetera. Yes, there's also a profit motive there. I mean, these are investments. So, I mean, he, some of that stability, hopefully for him, will mean uh, wealth. Yep. Um, but that's, that's, it's like, that's his visceral thing. And if you want to drill down to it, I mean, he's sort of, he doesn't lead with these things, but Mike did some pretty amazing things. You want to talk about like making even the bluest collar of the blue collar feel bougie. <laughs> talk to a vet who served overseas. I mean, like they make decisions and circumstances that I can't even fathom. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so I guess going back to the, you know, I think if you're doing it because of profit motive, you're doing it because of self-aggrandizement, um, you know, you're doing it because you've recognized to some level, to some extent that you are like incapable of conforming to the social context that most people have to in professional life, you know, like those are not the reasons to acquire a business. I think most people who acquire have this really interesting visceral existential need to do it. Uh, and it has some broader you know, impact on the life that they want to lead and the life that they want to create. And when you talk to another entrepreneur about that, they recognize themselves in it. You know, that's why Fred Satterfield started Satterfield Paving because he realized like, I want what this person has and I see what it can do for me and my family. And I don't want to be holding the shovel. And so I'm going to take the risk and do something. It's the it's like why you know the why is why are you taking this risk why are you doing this thing why why it's not you know it's about something big and meaningful and kind of squishy and that people can resonate with or right. will resonate with people right well Shannon I want to ask now about we we've talked about kind of connecting with the seller of a quote blue collar business uh, but let's talk more about the employees and you've now acquired the business and. You know, it's day one. Uh, you, Mr. You, Mr. Bougie, roll in, and <laughs> you're you're looking at a a room full of people who are uh, have different life circumstances than you. That's just on its face going to be a challenge uh, for many searchers. Um, so no need to state the obvious there. But what are maybe like some of the biggest pitfalls uh, that you see them make, other than other than you know ordering the flame mignon and, and steamed broccoli. I think That's I might have pretty had... minor, man. I, not to make you feel self-conscious. That that seems like a. I was like, wait, you ordered steak? You, you ordered uh, filet mignon at a steak restaurant? What's wrong with that? But so, <laughs> in Durham, North Carolina, for lunch. Yeah, it's. I mean, that's a whole other story. Okay, all right. I think I might have ordered a sparkling water too. Um, there was you know, a big misstep. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, needless to say, I have not done that again. Um, uh, Look, I, I think there are a few things to keep in mind. And, and look, some of, some of these actually would be true in any context. I just think they're more important to remember in, in, in this particular context. Yeah. Um, and one is, uh, like, one big pitfall is, is to make decisions based on your own, like, intellectual process. 
uh, rather than trying to create some sort of shared um, understanding of the problem. Okay. And, and thereby creating a kind of a collaborative attempt to make a solution. Okay. So I think, I think what often happens is, uh, you know, smart, thoughtful, self-assured people see a problem, you know, and a lot of entrepreneurs in general who have a sort of a bias toward action and, you know, feel like they have the kind of, okay, I understand generally speaking, what's going on. I see the solution. Let's go. Yep. Um, the problem is that uh, to the person sitting across the table from you who's been working at the business for 30 years and has been doing what they've been doing the way they've been doing it for 30 years, uh, you making a decision like that will feel to them as though you have essentially said, I, who have been in this business for weeks or months, know better how to do this than you do. You have been doing it wrong. And here's how you should do it. Um, and that may not be your intention. And you may have the best of intentions to maybe create a better situation for them, make their life easier, their work easier, whatever, what have you. Mm -hmm. But if they don't recognize the problem that you're solving, you have just created this opportunity for, for a schism, for a, for a disconnect. Mm -hmm. um, and I've seen that happen. I've done it. <laughs> uh, not good. Um, the second thing is, uh, you know, discounting the knowledge uh, on the team around you based on your perception of their informality, their education, et cetera. Um, you know, when you walk into this company, there will be decades and decades of experience around you. And at your own peril, you, you know, you've taken your, 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 your success in your own hands. If you ignore that, you don't actively seek it um, uh, and or you dismiss it. Uh, we've seen in some of these small businesses that a ton of tribal knowledge exists in one or two heads. If you can uh, understand uh, those people and help create a shared objective with those people, uh, you can scale that knowledge. You can expand it beyond those one or two heads and you can really build a kind of a transcendent uh, process in a transcendent business. To the extent that you disregard it, uh, you can alienate, alienate them, they can leave, and it can have very direct revenue, cost, quality impacts immediately. Uh, and so, so Shannon, just to be clear, this is, this is coming in and, and just assuming that you have a ton to learn and seeking out the knowledge, being really humble, um, somebody who's maybe been an overachiever in, in, in some conventional sense and gotten good grades their whole life, as it were, now needs to come in and assume they don't know anything and Correct. really seek that knowledge out. Is that, is, this is what we're talking about. Yep. That's what I'm talking about. You, you've much more succinctly said it than I did. <laughs> um, and, and is this something, I mean, that, I, forgive me, but that just, that seems like obvious. Like, I don't know anything about plumbing. I'm going to go in there and uh, ask people to, <laughs> to, to, to teach me, uh, to teach me. Um, but I guess this is something that, that people have a hard time doing because they're not used to being so, so vulnerable to use right. one of your other words uh, and humble. And maybe yeah. I'm underestimating how challenging it is. Cause I imagine there's like a tension where you also want to project, like I'm your new leader. 
So you, you do want to project strength and, and competence because you, you want, you want these people to, to believe in you. Um, so you're, you're torn between, you know, being like, Hey, strangers, trust me, I'm your new leader. I can do this. And also being like, I don't really know anything. So, um, and I, and I I recognize that and I'm going to ask you to teach me. It's a, it's a, it's a fine line. Yeah. Look, and and again, it's, this is not easy to do, but if all this stuff was easy to do, you know, (laughs) we'd all own businesses that, you know, there's a reason why very few people do this. It's not easy. Um, and look, I'm not, I'm not saying play dumb. I mean, like, I think one of the things that a lot of people fail to appreciate, like they go into buying a business of any kind and they think I'm not going to change anything. I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to like, it's, it's working. I'm going to keep it doing what it's doing. I'm not going to disrupt anything. And the fallacy in that is just by virtue of you being there and the previous owner, not you've changed things in a material way. You know, and particularly in this context, because you speak in a different way, you think in a different way, you pay attention to different details, you know, you ask questions that the other owner never asked. You know, it's just like you change things. Yeah. So what I'm saying is, uh, like, you may not know, and you likely won't know a hell of a lot about the specific trade that the company is employing. The difference is, if if it's nothing more, it might be nothing more than this. It's how you even ask questions. Mm-hmm. There's a way to ask a question that is essentially accusatory. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't understand why you do it this way. <laughs> yeah. Which is implying there's a problem here and you're screwing up. I like to ask dumb questions, you know, or we, you know, like, um, can you help me understand this? Yeah. How do you do this? Why do you do this? You know, what's the hardest thing not to screw up about this? What's, you know, like just, dumb open-ended questions so that people can tell you because there's art in what they're doing. It doesn't seem very artful a lot of the times, but there's art in what they're doing. And if you understand the art, you can understand the business. I'm not saying act dumb. I mean, like if, you know, if you're the typical search funded MBA, uh, uh, you know, searcher, you're going to come in and you're, you're going to, for yourself, probably you're going to have your spreadsheets and you're going to have your Gantt charts and you're going to have your ops, you know, (laughs) charts. And you're going to like, you'll be thinking about this, for yourself, but I'm just, and you're going to just by virtue of being you, they're going to know you're smart. Um, uh, but the other thing, the other point I'd make is that like trust is something that's earned. Leadership is something that's earned. You know, you don't show up and say, Hey, I own the company now. I mean, you can uh, like dictate by edict. I own the company. You work for me. You do what I say, but really trust and team, team, you know, team, uh, esprit de corps and leadership, that's something that you earn from people over time. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you can try to come in and act tough, but like, <laughs> it, it, that's not going to make you a leader and it's not going to make them feel comfortable working with you. Yeah. I think it's a great point about the fact that uh, the, the folks who, who say to themselves, I'm not going to touch anything. I'm not going to change anything. Uh, your very presence is an enormous change. So, some, so just be, being super aware of that, um, even if you don't touch a thing, you're, the people that work for you are experiencing a lot of change, whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. And so, when how do you how does one kind of feel out when it's time to? I, and this is probably so case by case; it's hard to to make a, a rule around it. But 
when as a new owner, can I start making changes? Uh, you know, I've been there for six months. I've listened. I've been humble. I've learned a ton. Can I, can I make changes now, Shannon? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Can you? Um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and I wish I had kind of the silver bullet to say, okay, six months in a day, or right. if you have achieved right. these very specific methods, now you can start changing everything. Um, but for me, or, or the way we think about it, I think with our partners and the way I've learned to think about it in, in cases where I've kind of uh, either had to make a change in an operation that was moving one direction or when I've kind of parachuted into leadership uh, is like, it, I think that there is a misnomer that change is sort of like intellectual leader driven. Mm -hmm. I see the process, the process doesn't work. I devise a solution. The process will work if we implement the solution. Now all I need to do is just convince everybody that the solution is the way to go and we're good to go. Mm -hmm. Really, uh, I think material change implementation is about relationships. It's about trust. It's about shared understanding. And it's about a lot of like relationship work to get there. Mm -hmm. So you're ready to make changes when you have a strong enough relationship with the important people around you at the company such that you can have the candid conversations with them about the thing that is a problem and you achieve shared recognition of that thing as a problem and you are aware enough of uh, their methods and their feelings about it that you can create a shared solution so that this is not an edict or dictatorial change management situation. It's a shared company-wide process adjustment situation. Mm -hmm. So... I'm not sure if I'm totally dodging the question there, but the idea I think of as is um, you know, big big changes that are going to um, materially impact the day-to-day -day experience of your team, you shouldn't be making unilaterally as the president. Yeah. You should be involving them in that. And, 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 mm -hmm. I was just going to say one example of something that I was a part of with one of our companies that ultimately turned out in a way that I... Uh, regretted and, and, and didn't anticipate is, you know, we bought a company that uh, was not paying benefits to its employees. And we just thought, well, shoot, you know, it sort of stands to reason they would love benefits. Right. Right. Why Naturally. wouldn't you? Why yep. wouldn't you? I mean, is your hedge, I mean, here's, here's a very MBA way to think about it. You're hedging bankruptcy risk associated with the catastrophic healthcare, you know, book. so we roll out benefits and it lands like the proverbial lead balloon with the field workforce. I'm like, well, why <laughs> we're spending this additional money to give you this great additional value. Your family can be taken care of. You're not going to have any of these problems. Like this is great for you. Right. And the reaction was I'd rather have $3 more an hour. Yeah. And we'd say, Oh, but we're spending like seven, almost $8 an hour more to get this for you. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well then I'd rather have $5 more an hour. <laughs> yeah. Because that's actually, like, I understand what you're saying, but $5 more an hour would mean a lot to me right now. Yeah. And it was just a fundamental disconnect between like a lack of understanding of the day-to-day -day experience that those teammates had and what they valued and what they needed. And How could you have figured that out in advance? I mean, that's, um, that, that, that's such a, that's a profound difference between you and them, but also very, very subtle. Uh, well, we could have asked. Just said, yeah. Like, would you prefer benefits or more salary, essentially? Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. It's pretty simple. Yeah. 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 And we did that. We corrected that mistake at subsequent companies. And, you know, we have different solutions for different companies based yeah. on the needs of the workforce and what they, what they want. And we've created kind of hack solutions where we can, they can opt in in a way, uh, you know, so that they don't all have to, it's not a unilateral thing, but yeah. I mean, simply put, we could have gotten out of the office, gotten into the field and said, Hey, I'm thinking about this as a problem. Is that a real problem for you? Yeah. Oh, it's not. Okay. What's the real problem? Oh, three bucks more an hour is the problem. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. All right. But we didn't do that. With the question about change and when, when you can feel comfortable changing, what you really want to be paying attention to is not, it's not how long you've been at the business. It's, it's simply like the, the, the nature of the relationship that you have with the team. And yep. do you feel like you're at a place where it's collaborative or are you still getting to know each other? So if you're paying v- really close attention to anything, it's, it's how you fit into the, the family that you've inherited. I agree. Yeah. Uh, and recognizing that they probably think of them to some extent, at least the, the office staff will probably think of themselves that way <laughs> as a family. Yeah. Um, and it's also, you know, recognizing that for a small business, even working on the business requires working in the business because you have to, if you're employing 20 people, even one or two defections against strategy can have big consequences in terms of process implementation and performance. And so, you know, even if you feel like you understand the business really well and you have a good understanding of the team and all this stuff, your job as the leader of a business or your job as a leader of any group is to, you know, never take for granted your relationships with that group. You're the key influencer of the group. You're the, you're the, you're the, like divining, divining strategy is one thing, but implementing and, and persuading is that's the leadership. It's making sure everybody understands their role in this process and has a shared, you know, has some meaningful uh, you know, way to participate in its outcome and, and that sort of thing. And like, that's what you're doing as the owner and leader of a business. Mm-hmm. Shannon, let's leave it there. This has been, um, this has been a masterclass. Um, really, really great thoughts on something that's very subtle, but, but perhaps, you know, probably the thing, if you're buying a, a business like this, a blue collar business, the thing that, w- that will make or break the acquisition. You tell, just tell, tell people, are you looking to actively invest in searchers right now? It sounds like you, you, you are, it sounds like you just did a deal and have another, a bunch of a pipeline of deals. So is that something that if people have a deal that they should reach out to you? What, what, what can you tell people? Yeah. So, so we invest in search two ways. Uh, one is through, uh, what some people know is our sole sponsored model where we have a, it looks in some ways like a search fund, but instead of uh, there being many investors in support of the search. There's just one. It's us, and we partner directly with the entrepreneur, and we are very active in helping them in their search for the business and to get it, the deal done and and you know operating on a go forward basis. Um, and and Shannon, can I just interject? Is that uh, it's different than a search traditional search fund in, the, in that there's just a single investor? But is the size of deal typically the same size as you'd find in a, in a traditional search fund deal? Uh, it depends. The deal sizes have varied between on the low end, uh, 4 million and on the high end, uh, 15 before earnout, 15 million. So, it, okay. I mean, it's, uh, look, some of, some of the traditional search deals are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So by, uh, those standards may be smaller, 
um, certainly bigger than the typical self-funded deal. Okay. Uh, and, you know, maybe comparable to some of the other uh, incubator uh, type investment groups out there. Okay. So, um, and then we're also lesser known uh, is uh, we're also interested in supporting self-funded entrepreneurs. Um, uh, so uh, you know, we'd be happy to talk to folks who are either embarking on a search uh, for self-funded uh, acquisition or who are searching and have things that they want to talk to us about or want us to consider investing in. I think one of the one of the nice things that we try to, you know, my partner, Matt Littell, and I uh, both consider ourselves more entrepreneurs than we do investors. Mm-hmm. Um, and we try to err on the side of contributing to uh, the community, if you will, uh, and being responsive to people. So I think a lot of people feel like they can't approach someone like me or someone like Matt until they have something specific and actionable to talk about. Yeah. But we actually like getting to know people early in the process and trying to figure out if we can be helpful. It's nice for both sides of the relationship to learn about each other that way. So, um, yeah. So, you know, anybody can reach out to me at sjones at halstat.com, LinkedIn, search funder. Uh, I'm happy to talk. I'm happy to, uh, you know, offer uh, assistance where we can on, on deal structuring, negotiating strategy. We've looked at thousands of deals over the last six years. So, uh, I've seen all kinds of crazy stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Happy to talk about, uh, you know, that stuff or, you know, talk about if you're operating a company, talk about that, whatever we can do to help. Great. Great. Shannon Jones, thank you very much for this, this conversation. Really, uh, a really a valuable one. I look forward to having you back. Look forward to it. Thanks.